today we continue our study in the book of James chapter 4. James chapter 4, and we will be looking at verses 4 to 6. James 4 and verses 4 to 6. Uh, and as you turn there, as you get there, you know, of the friendships we have described in the scriptures, there is uh, one of the more prominent ones that there is, is that between David and Jonathan. David, the future king of Israel, right? King David, uh, whom we are well familiar with. And Jonathan, who uh, at the time was the son of the then king, Saul. Uh, he's the son of King Saul. And their friendship really begins at the start of the slaying of Goliath. And right, we've probably maybe seen, like, I'm sure there's a Veggie Tales about it, right? Something like that. Uh, or, you know, so all, all kinds of different ways that we have heard and seen that story. Uh, well, at the end of that, um, at the end of that scene in the scriptures, we have this joining of David and Jonathan as friends. And the scriptures report in 1 Samuel 18, 1 Samuel 18, verses 1 through 4, the kind of friendship that develops. So listen to this. This is the friendship between David and Jonathan. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. So isn't that an interesting description there of this strong Friendship. This is a friendship that goes beyond the bounds of being an acquaintance. This is more than just being a comrade, right? They were both soldiers uh, in some regard. And David would go on, of course, to be a great soldier in the king's army. Uh, but this is more than just that they're comrades in arms. This is, this is a deep, lasting, loving friendship. We see uh, a few times mentioned there that Jonathan loved David as his own soul, right? He was obeying the commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. He took that quite literally, right? And, and we see that, the, the friendship between them. It actually gets to the point where uh, as King Saul turns against David, as King Saul tries to kill David, uh, he actually, King Saul berates, belittles, and really chastises Jonathan for that friendship, even going so far as to uh, make fun of, uh, uh, in a crude way, to make fun of Jonathan's mother, who is Saul's wife, uh, about this friendship that they have together. So uh, he insults Jonathan's mother. But Saul himself doesn't understand the kind of loyalty and love that exists between these two. Uh, and indeed, we know that Saul doesn't understand loyalty because he tries to kill David, his most loyal servant. Uh, but as we turn to our passage today, we find James describing a friendship. And the friendship, though, uh, to the, he's writing to the churches, and the friendship that he sees among the churches is not the kind of thing that we see between David and Jonathan. It's a much darker affair. 
So James instructs us today, and I want us to see today, that James instructs us that to be in love with, with the world is to be at war with God. To be in love with the world is to be at war with God. So let us look at our passage today. Let us read the scriptures together. James 4, starting in verse 4, the scripture says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And this is the word of the Lord. Right, as we have seen so far in the, in the book of James, right, James' purpose in writing the letter is he wants the churches in and around Syria and Palestine, he wants them to stand strong. He wants them to be faithful. He wants them to have the wisdom they need to meet the various trials of life that they will face. He wants them to be wholeheartedly devoted to God. He wants them to be single-minded, not double-minded, single-minded. And here in our passage, we have this last issue, this issue of wholeheartedness in vivid language. Because James here is addressing a current within the church of double-mindedness, of duplicitousness of faith. Along the way, we have read of some of the ways in which the church has failed, right? Some of the issues that he has been addressing in chapter 2. We begin with the issue of favoritism or partiality, right? That that may be fine in secular circles, that there is partiality shown or, or respecter of persons shown, but in the church it shouldn't be, right? James concludes in James 2.9, but if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So there's partiality within the church. Not only that, at the towards the end of chapter 2, right, he deals with the issue of faith and works, that there were some who said, well, James, it's all well and good that you talk about good works, but I don't care. I believe in Jesus, and that's all I need. I don't need to prove anything. And James says, how foolish is that? If you have faith, you have to have works. Not in order to be saved, But if you are saved, you will have evidence of that. And the evidence of that is good works. Chapter 3 deals with the issue of people pushing for priority and prominence within the church to be a teacher. That they want to be teachers, even though they're not qualified to it, even though they don't have the character for it. Even though they don't understand the greater judgment that is awaiting them. And as the tongue, he deals with the issue of the tongue, right? Our speech and He talks about the wars and quarrelings, the blessing and cursing that comes from the same lips that should not be. And even to the beginning of chapter 4, right, the quarrels and fights that are within the church, the, the verbal sparring that is happening within the church because of their wrong seated desires. James here cuts to a deeper issue their allegiance, their friendship. So let's see that first in a bitter friendship in verse 4, a bitter friendship. And we really have some stunning language here. 
right? James begins, you adulterous people. And you may have a subnote there or your uh, translation might, might uh, render it this way. He actually says, you adulteresses. And he uses the feminine for an important reason. We'll get to that in just a moment. But this is really stunning language because how has James really addressed his readers so far? We see time and time again, what does he do? He says, my brothers or my brothers and sisters, right? The, the Greek would allow for that. Uh, it's the Greek word adelphoi, right? My brothers and sisters, right? Th- that's a familiar term. That's a term of endearment. And now here he turns, right? This is not a term of endearment. Right? If someone comes up to you and calls you an adulterer, you don't go, oh, I'm so glad you call me that, right? right? Those are fighting words. And James has that point here, right? He pulls no punches. He doesn't mitigate the language he's using. Instead, he's using language like we see in the Old Testament, in the prophets. And that, I think, is the point of why he uses the feminine term here, adulteresses. Because he hearkens back to the same thing that the people of Israel were guilty of that we see in the prophets. Uh, for instance, we could look to Hosea chapter 4, Hosea chapter 4, verses 12 through 13. Hosea 4, 12 through 13. Uh, listen, listen to what God says to his people. My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff, walking staff gives them oracles. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. They sacrifice to the tops of the mountains and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth, because their shade is good. Therefore, your daughters play the whore, and your brides commit adultery. Right? That is that is stunning language. God is saying this about His people. The church, James writes, is acting in the same way that the people of Israel of old did. That they promise themselves, they covenant themselves, right? To use the what we do in uh, the rites of marriage, right? We talk about making a marriage covenant. They promise themselves to one God. And instead, they're worshiping every God that comes along the way and catches their eye. They promise themselves to one and they are playing the harlot. They're playing playing the whore. And James says here, if you are seeking friendship with this world, if you are in love with this world, rather than being wholeheartedly devoted to the God you promised yourself to, you're an adulterer. And indeed, if we take the worst of all that James has said thus far, right, that the church has been playing favorites, that the church hasn't been doing good works, that the church has used its speech for hateful, cursing, divisiveness, then what James describes isn't the church. Right? If that's the picture, if that's the portrait of the people he is writing to, that's not the church. Because the church isn't supposed to be like that. There's something seriously wrong. And consider that. Consider that the church is created, called, commanded to be different from the world it exists in. It is called to stand against the gates of hell. 
not build them up. And yet the church has made itself a friend of the world. And is this not adultery? Is this not playing the whore as the people of Israel did in the times of old? Or to say it the way Jesus says, right? Matthew 6, 24. Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot be friends with the world and friends with God. Why? Because the two are diametrically opposed to one another. Because what the one wants and enjoys, the other hates. What the one celebrates, the other mourns. And here I think it's helpful to pause and ask, okay, well, what does it mean to have friendship and what does it mean to be a friend, right? So let's just talk about this generally. Let's think about this generally. What does it mean to be a friend? Well, friends know one another, right? There's a mutual understanding and knowledge about one another that others do not share, right? Friends know things about one another that others do not. There's an intimacy. And guys, uh, we have to wrest control of that word from the realm of sex and women, right? We use that word, and often the only thing we think of uh, with intimacy is uh, sex because our culture is over-sexualized. But the word is broader than that, right? It's about knowing someone, uh, knowing who that person is, what motivates them, what drives them, what do they fear, what do they enjoy. Friends know one another. Friends also trust one another, right? If you're a friend, you trust your friend, or otherwise you're not friends. If you don't have trust for the person you call friend, you're not a friend. Right? There's a shared bond of trust, that you're working for the benefit of the other. Right? That you're not just in it for yourself. They're not just in it for themselves. What you share in confidence will remain in confidence. Right? If you tell your friend something in confidence, you know that they're not going to go and spread it about. And if they do, are they really a friend? Right? When you need help, your friend will be there. So friends trust one another. Friends also love one another. Proverbs 17, 17 tells us, Proverbs 17, 17, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. And love, church, doesn't mean merely some warm feelings we have for another person. Love means that we go out of our way to sacrifice for their good. You go out of the way to work for their good. You seek their best. You do what you can for them, and you expect nothing in return. That's what love is. Because understand that friendship, being a friend, it is not a business transaction. Again, that's common in our day, especially in our culture, because we are a a capitalistic culture, and so we think of everything in terms of profit loss. What's my profit in engaging in this relationship? What's my loss in engaging with this relationship? Am I going to make an, is this an investment that I'm going to uh, reap more out of in a few years? And if not, well, maybe uh, get rid of them. I'm, and I'm serious. Go look at, read through uh, some of what our culture talks about relationships. Uh, read through what entrepreneurs say about relationships. And, it's, and it is geared towards Is that relationship going to build you up and make you a better person tomorrow? Or is it going to, is it going to take from you? Is it going to drain from you? That's not what friendship is. 
Friendship isn't a business transaction. Uh, Because if you understand it in that way, you ultimately fail the test of love. Uh, Friendship also, by the way, is not what we have on social medias, emails, text messages, uh, TikToks, whatever you want to say. Those may be ways that we keep alive the flames of a friendship, but friends they do not make. Why is that? Because how are you knowing that person? And how are you being known by that person when you're separated by a digital divide? Right? How are you evidencing love for them and serving them in love if all they are is right, a little profile picture and some text? And by the way, this is not being a Luddite or a fuddy-duddy, uh, although maybe sometimes there are those impulses in me. Uh, this is the reality of what human relationship requires. Right? If there's one thing that uh, the pandemic has taught us is that as humans, we are not meant to be isolated from one another. And by the way, a church is not a church unless it meets in person. There's times and issues and uh, reasons why we can't meet. There, we are providentially hindered from meeting. But a church is a church when it's in person because that's what it requires. But that brings us back to the question, what is friendship? Right? It's knowing, it's trusting, it's loving. And James calls out his Christian readers here because what they have been doing is knowing and trusting and loving the world more than their God. What James means here by the world as well, right? when he says, you know that Friendship with the world is enmity with God. He's not talking about right, the globe. He's talking about, as we often see in the New Testament, uh, this idea or this issue of the world being the evil satanic systems that exist, right? The unholy and profane that we see around us. It is that which is set apart and against God and his ways. And what this world system loves, adores, celebrates God hates. God hates the sinful rebellion present in this world because it is an affront to his holy character. And the word, the world, is like the one Isaiah calls out in Isaiah 5.20. Isaiah 5.20 Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. This world, understand that, this world calls good evil and evil good. And I can't tell you the number of times, uh, especially uh, I think in the last six months to the year, uh, certainly more than that, but I've certainly noticed it more recently, the number of times I've read articles I've seen the news headlines where, where our culture calls good, evil, despicable, hateful, and evil, good, and righteous. When we, uh, it, 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 is, it is terrible and terrifying uh, to see what will become of our culture as it continues as as it always does down this path. 
we have months and movements, after all, dedicated to celebrating that which is evil, that that which God calls abhorrent. And for the God of all good, right? God being the very definition of good. And realize that in the English, we get our word for good from God. Do you not see how all this is abhorrent in his eyes? And indeed, James writes here, right? Do you not know that to, that to know, to trust, to love this world that hates good and loves evil is enmity with God, is hate, hateful hostility towards God. And therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And this is where you have a choice. And this is where you must consider your own life. Brothers and sisters in Christ, do you love this world? Are you in love with the things that God hates? Do you seek to know and trust and love, be a friend to that which is set against God? Have you made fast friends with a world that is set against the one true and living God? And before you're quick to answer that, because I know the the immediate answer that we want to say springs to mind, well, no, I'm not going to do that, right? I love God. And I could bet that James, the people that he is writing to, would probably say the same thing. Well, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not in love. I'm not a, I don't hate God. I'm not at war with God. I'm a Christian. I believe in God. But really stop and consider. What does the way you live say about what you love? If someone were to take an overview of the way you spend your time, the words that you use, the things you watch and sing, and like the way you spend your money, the way you treat others, what would they conclude? Maybe they, and maybe you, should rightly conclude. Adulterer. This is a bitter friendship. And let's see next a jealous dwelling in verse 5. A jealous dwelling. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? And uh, there are a lot of complicated uh, translation and interpretation issues in this verse. Uh, It's difficult because of the sentence structure, uh, because in Greek, uh, you can kind of massage the sentence structure for emphasis. In English, we have a very set order right it's subject verb object and that's pretty standard uh, and unless you're like a poet and going crazy right you, you don't really break out from that uh, but in greek it's not that way and so uh, just a couple of the issues and if you have more questions about this um, I, I could certainly talk to you more about what what the more of the particulars of these issues 
but it could be, so we, we have different translations uh, render this verse differently because it could be that it is God who's jealous over the spirit and the spirit there being either the spirit that he breathed into us in creation or it could be the Holy Spirit. Uh, if you have the ESV, you see that they've made an interpretive decision here. Uh, it is not the Holy Spirit. Or it could be the spirit that is endlessly yearning for evil things. So it could be God yearning or it could be the spirit yearning. Uh, and again, if you want to know more about that uh, issues, I could talk to you about that. But, but I would go with what the ESV has here, right? I think that's a, a, a helpful and makes sense of the data. Uh, and that is to say that God yearns jealously over his people. Right? That's, a, that's a way that we could understand this verse. God yearns jealously over his people. Uh, we are not helped here either by the fact that it says, do you not, uh, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says? James says that, but we don't have this as a quotation anywhere in the Bible, and we don't have it in extra biblical Jewish sources. So we're, so we're left to under kind of question this. Um, but it seems to be that he's referencing this theme that we see throughout the scripture that God is jealous for the affections of his people. God is jealous for the affections of his people. We could look to Exodus 20, verses 4 to 6. Exodus 20, 4 to 6, right? One of the Ten Commandments. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve him. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Or Deuteronomy 4.24, Deuteronomy 4.24, also in the context of the Ten Commandments, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Right? We do see this throughout the scriptures. The Lord God is a jealous God. And while we may think of jealousy as an evil emotion, and in us it often is, it is right and proper for God to be jealous because he alone is worthy of praise and honor and worship. He alone is God. He alone deserves our devotion and affections. And if there were someone greater than God, then it would be evil because God would be taking a place that he does not have. It would be wrong. But as it is, God alone is. We were created to worship the Lord God. And instead, what we find in the world around us, right, is that we have made gods of everything and anything. If there's something that we could bow down and worship, we've done it. Uh, And it doesn't even have to be a physical thing, right? There are certainly plenty of options where we see that, right? Plenty of times in in history uh, in other places of the world where we see that to be the case. Uh, here in America, we don't necessarily bow down and worship at statues or idols. Uh, but what, what do we do? We bow down and worship money or power, prominence, fame. Uh, we worship things that should not be worshipped. Uh, and I would just go ahead and say there, there's always the classic. Uh, we do have a or did have a show called American Idol. We worship celebrity. Uh, and uh, that is worship, 
often what we do, right? Uh, people adulating and, and crying and singing praise to celebrities, artists. Uh, watch a concert sometimes. Some, some, sometimes you see this in a concert. Uh, people worshiping the person on stage. Don't think that that's not worship. It's what they're doing. Uh, we were created to worship the Lord God, and instead we worship all kinds of things that are not God. If you have committed yourself to Christ, and you make yourself a friend of the evil that Christ came to subdue and overturn, do you not see the evil in that? Do you not see the reason why God should not pursue his people with consuming fire? Is it to no purpose that throughout the scripture we have this example of the unfaithfulness of the people of God and the pursuit of God for his people? Consider Hosea 2. If you want, you can turn there. It's a little bit lengthier of a passage. Hosea is a, a book that is filled with what James is talking about here. Hosea 2, uh, 12 to 16. Hosea 2, 12 to 16. So God speaking here, God through the prophet Hosea says, And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the balls, where when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold. And I just want to pause here and say, what do we expect God to say next? I think we expect God to say, therefore, behold, I will lay her waste and she'll never pick up her head again. But listen to what God says. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and you will no longer call me my ball. The blessings of God, which the people of Israel attributed to the false gods, God removes. Why? To allure her back to himself. He will remove the blessings that his people have wrongly attributed that they might see their evil ways and he will restore them when they recognize who they are. Whose they are. God's. See now this, a gracious gift. And let's look at verse 6 of our passage. A gracious gift. Verse 6. But he gives more grace. Let that phrase ring in your ears. Let these words drive themselves deep into your mind. Let them be an earworm. You may have been an adulterer flirting with friendship with this world. You may have suffered under the severe kindness of God to awaken you from such foolishness. God gives more grace. He gives you the grace to repent. 
He gives you the grace of His Holy Spirit to put to death the deeds of the body. And so Augustine prays, and all my hope is found, and all my hope is nowhere but in your exceeding great mercy. Give what you command, and command what you will. Augustine recognizes that if God commands him to anything, he needs the grace of God in order to meet that command. He could not do what was commanded unless God has given him the grace to do it. Peter writes in 2 Peter 1 3. 2 Peter 1 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So, brothers and sisters in Christ, you want to be God's friend and not his enemy? Entreat him for the grace you need. Pray to him and ask him for the strength to overcome your sin. And understand that one of the graces that God gives you is the church, your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. We want you to to stand blameless in the day of judgment. That's my desire for you. I know it's others' desire for you too. right? You have friends in Christ who want for you what Christ wants for you. But God opposes the proud. He will do away with the arrogant. right? We have this quote, From the book of Proverbs, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We could look also to Proverbs 16, 5. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. That's Proverbs 16, 5. Or the classic proverb, Proverbs 16, 18. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. God opposes the proud because the proud think they have no need of God. Right? Indeed, you may think you have no need of God. Why would you need His grace? You've got it all together. You've got it all. You've got money and status. You don't need God and you don't need His grace. And that's an extreme, maybe. But here, more subtly, this too is pride. Well, I can beat this sin problem on my own. I I don't need anyone else. I'll show everyone how great I am when I kill this sin in my life. I'll prove how much I love God by doing it on my own. Certainly don't want to bother God or anyone else with it. God opposes such pride. But notice what it says too. But gives grace to the humble. There is yet more grace. If you humbly call out to him in your need, he will graciously give you all things. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this may be a bold statement. The only grace you do not have is the grace that you do not ask for. The only grace that you do not have is the grace you do not ask for. You do not have because you do not ask. Or we've seen that already in chapter 4. Do you not think? And, and, and stop and, and listen. Do you not think that God wants you to walk in holiness before him. Does God want that for you? Do you not think that God wants you to be as his son is? Do you think that God wants you to be as Christ is? Do you not think that God's very purpose for you is to this end, that you stand holy and blameless and above reproach before him? 
Is that what God wants for you? The scriptures are clear. The scriptures are clear, brothers and sisters in Christ. God is not some cruel child teasing us. Right? He is not commanding us that which we have no means to obtain. He does not woo us with his love and then like a bad boyfriend begin berating and tearing us down. No, beloved, God is not like us. Praise God for that. Who exactly is your friend? That goes back to what James has said at the outset. James addresses the church because he has borne witness to a friendship with this world's evil systems. He has noted something among the people of a war, not just words of war of words between fellow church members, but a war between the church member and God himself. Because to be friends with the world is to be at war with God. Christian, if you think you can attend yourself to this world's ways, imbibing in the illicit desires of this place, being divisive and hateful, patterning yourself after the culture around us, if you think you can do that and be at peace with God, you are wrong. Brothers and sisters in Christ, God is to be your first and foremost love. It is he to whom you owe single-minded allegiance. He is your creator after all. More than that, he is also your father. If indeed you are in Christ Jesus, you owe him everything. He gives greater grace. He gives more grace. He gives grace to those who in humility seek him. And the Christian life is not a test filled with trick questions. Trying, you know, God's not trying to stump you or thwart you. Listen to these words from Romans chapter 8, Romans 8, 28 through 30. And really listen to these. Maybe for the first time in your life, listen to these. Who is God towards his people? Listen. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that they might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this greater grace of God is enough to make me weep. Because I know the evils of my own heart. I know the times in which I have made uh, good friends with this world and been at war with God. I know the ways in which I have played the harlot to everything with a buck and a grin that comes along. And yet Christ Jesus died for me, yet he loved me, yet he sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood, as the hymn goes. He gives greater grace because he turns me again and again back to him. He gives greater grace because he does not treat me as my sins deserve. He gives greater grace because he wills and works for my glorification. And that, my friends, is astounding grace. 
That is the greater grace that God has towards you who are His. So wherever the place of your heart is today, go to God and humbly ask Him for grace. Ask Him for the grace to kill the sin that's in your life. Ask Him for the grace to trust Him in the midst of difficult circumstances. Ask Him for the grace to be what He commands you to be. 1 Thessalonians 5.24 tells us, He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. But for some of you, there is no grace. There's only war. One you will lose. And listen, this is not about whether or not you profess the name of Jesus. right? There are many in the world who profess Christ, who say Jesus has this kind of magic incantation word, But if you examine their lives, you would find that their first and favorite friend is not Christ. It's the world. It's the world that Christ Jesus came to kill and be done with. It's sin. It's the evil one that they love, not Jesus. Understand this. To make yourself a friend of this world, to pattern yourself after it, to to live in it and love the things of it, To seek the things this world seeks, power, position, money, fame, is to seek the things that make for war. And you will find the Lord God to be fierce in battle. He is, after all, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of many armies. And you will find the gentle and lowly Christ Jesus to be an opponent who has no equal. You will find that your prideful opposition of God and His ways, even if you keep your sins to yourself, will result in one end, judgment. God will bring the fullness of His righteous fury and judgment against you who love this world, you who serve the master of this world. He will humble you, but by then it will be too late. So while it is still today, repent. Turn from this world and turn to God. Believe that the work Christ Jesus did on the cross in his death paid the penalty of your sins. Believe that Christ Jesus rose from the grave, giving you the hope of eternal life. Believe that as surely as he is seated at the right hand of God, that he will come again and will bring you to himself, that where he is, you may be also. Confess your sins, repent of them, and seek the greater grace of God. End your friendship with this world and seek the friend who is like no other. Let us pray. Oh, Father God, forgive us. Forgive us for ever entertaining thoughts of of being with this world. God, forgive us for playing the adulterer and loving after the things that you hate. God, forgive us and give us the greater grace that we need to kill those things in our life. God, to to end our friendship with this world. Lord, to, to put to death the deeds of the body. Give us greater grace that we may see that your purpose for us who are in Christ is that we would stand before you holy, that we would be conformed to the image of your Son. Oh, Lord God, give us greater grace. 
And we thank you, Lord, that you are the God of all grace, that, that you, Father, are abundant in mercy and grace. And Father, we don't want to at all take that for granted. For we know, Lord, we deserve none of it. We deserve nothing of your mercy and nothing of your grace. We have no right to it. We have no merit of it. It is not ours by birth. It is only that which you have willed, that which you have chosen, that which you have done, that makes us recipients of it. And Father, that humbles us. God, we pray that we would walk this week by your grace and holiness. And Father, we pray that you would have mercy upon those who have turned from you. Father, we pray you would have mercy upon those who do not trust in you. Father, we pray for those that have made friends with this world. Lord God, that they may know peace between them and you. That your spirit would change them, Lord God. Father, that you would give us boldness to speak into them the message of reconciliation. Father God, be praised. And us, your people, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.